That's gospel, folks. Thank you, worship team. It is our honor and privilege to welcome Pastor Tom Darnell. He is the pastor of our denomination spiritual formation here in our own Nashville Presbytery. So, Brother Tom, come on up and break the bread of life for us. It's great to be with you again. Uh, what I do uh, is probably not clear about the title I have. Uh, I uh, pastor the pastors in our regional area of, of PCA churches. Uh, there are about 80 of them, and uh, they are a blessing and a challenge uh, to pastors. Lord gives opportunity. So I've been doing that for about 13 months now, uh, and it's a real delight to be in that role here uh, in our presbytery. I'm sure a lot of you uh, have seen 3D movies. Have you all seen a 3D movie before? Come in, put the glasses on, and watch a 3D movie, and how this flat image turns into a 3D image. I'm not sure if you've seen stereograms before. I brought a stereogram book. Have you looked at stereogram books before, uh, where you look at these flat images, and you, kind of, you look cross-eyed in the right way? Uh, these images actually turn into a 3D image. And uh, if you want to look at this book after the service and try it out, you can. Uh, but it's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? Uh, it's a little bit like that sometimes in life you realize you're trying to look at something and realize you're looking at it entirely the wrong way. And if you don't look at this 3D image in the right way, you're not going to see the 3D image that's buried in there. So the challenge for all of us in the Christian faith is to search the Scripture in such a way uh, that the 3D images that God has put there come to life. It becomes much more than a two-dimensional page. It becomes a three-dimensional image of what God desires for us to learn from his word. And the images that God wants us to see uh, in his word, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, uh, is the image of Jesus Christ. And we have something in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that tells us uh, why that image uh, is in Scripture. Let me read this to you from 1 Corinthians 10. Paul writes, he says, I want you to know, brothers, uh, that our fathers all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So Paul is telling the church in Corinth uh, that the Old Testament stories that we read over and over and over again are two things. One, they're a signpost, uh, that they're stories that point to Jesus Christ. They point to the red thread of redemption that's all the way through Scripture. But they're also examples uh, that they are stories that teach us how to respond to Jesus. So the story uh, about the rock uh, that is Christ is from Exodus 17. And we want to desire today to look at this passage as 1 Corinthians teaches us, and to see that it teaches us that Jesus is in this story. He is a signpost for us in the story. And also teaches us how to respond to who Jesus is. Who he is, and our response to who he is, he's also an example. Signpost and an example. Let me read Exodus, and I think I have given uh, Richard the wrong ending verse of this passage. It's actually verse 7, not 16. 
I had 16 in my mind, I think, when I gave him the passage I was talking about today. Exodus 17, 1-7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of the place, uh, of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we desire that our hearts be taught by you the signpost and example that's in this Old Testament story. Lord, that we would see the Christ in a way we haven't seen him before, perhaps, and that it would instruct us how we're to respond to him. So, Lord, have your way with our hearts and affections. Be our teacher. Give us humility and give us hope and desire to be conformed into that image of Christ and to thirst after him, our living rock, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I want you to see... Uh, the what the writer does to set the stage for this story in Exodus 17. Uh, the two chapters before chapter 17 uh, tell us about how God delivered Israel from Pharaoh uh, at the Red Sea. Uh, they uh, haven't come yet uh, to Mount Sinai, where God will give them the Ten Commandments, so they're on their way to Mount Sinai. So verse, tell, verse 1 tells us they stop at a place called Rephidim on the way from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, and they discovered as they get to Rephidim uh, that all the water fountains are broke. Uh, there's no water. Uh, they're thirsty. And uh, there are hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, and so we notice in verse 2 how the stage begins to set up the story. It says that the Israelites quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now, quarrel uh, is actually the root of the word Meribah, which we just read as the name of this place. Uh, and the name is given uh, because of the incident that is going to unfold. Quarrel actually means the word to lodge a complaint. Uh, it means to make an indictment. And even more specifically, it's a legal term describing the filing of a lawsuit. So the Old Testament prophets use the word quarrel that we read here in Exodus 17 elsewhere, like in Micah 6.2, that talks about God's lawsuit against his own people. Listen to Micah 6.2. The Lord has an indictment. It's the word quarrel here, but translated indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. 
So here, now Israel, in this story, in Exodus 17, files a lawsuit against Moses. It says the people quarreled with Moses. They bring an indictment against him. There's a lawsuit they're bringing before Moses. So the lawsuit apparently rose uh, to include uh, the offense of capital of a capital offense because we read, as Moses says to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? Uh, they are almost ready to stone me. So they felt this indictment, if found to be true, was worthy of capital punishment. It seems that Israel is charging Moses with treason, uh, and so Moses is being uh, charged with betraying the nation of Israel or bringing them into the desert to kill them. But Moses recognizes that the person actually that's being charged here is not him, uh, but it's the Lord. He says to the people, why do you test the Lord? Moses rightly sees that they are bringing the indictment against God. Now, God had already shown his love for his people by providing the manna when they were hungry, uh, before they got to this place in Rephidim. But so, in fact, by distrusting God's provision for them and his promises for his people, uh, that uh, they, they, in fact, are the ones on trial, not God. And you'll see how this unfolds as we go forward. Second, I want you to notice in verse 5 how the stage is further set. We read, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So taking elders with him then become witnesses to the courtroom uh, that's being set up. They are witnesses of what's now going to unfold. And then he's told to take the staff in his hand with which he struck the Nile. So what is the staff that Moses has in his hand? It's a staff of judgment. God uses the staff that Moses has to judge Egypt time after time in the ten plagues, right? So here he takes a rod of judgment with him. We read about God's rod of judgment in Isaiah 30, which says, The Assyrian shall be terror-stricken with the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. But in this case, it's the rod that Moses has that God gave him that he takes to this scene. So here's what we're doing here in Exodus 17. We're together going to enter the courtroom scene of this indictment uh, that the people of Israel are bringing against Moses, which in fact is against the Lord. And we're going to see that actually it's a courtroom scene of God's indictment upon Israel. So we're going to look at the story of the rock of living water as a signpost. And then secondly, the rock of living water is an example. So let's look at this point about that it's a signpost. I want you to notice several things here in this story. I want you, first of all, to notice who stood before whom. Uh, it's a little subtle thing, but it's very important. God says to Moses, very interesting, he says, I will stand before you. It's very unusual. Uh, only place in Scripture where God stands before man. Uh, every other place, it's the people that stand before God. They stand before God the judge. Here, they're going to stand uh, before, uh, God's going to stand before Moses. In fact, in Old Testament law, if you look at the scriptures, like in Deuteronomy 19, uh, the accuser is the one that stands before the Lord and human judges. Listen to uh, Deuteronomy 19:17. The two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are all in office at that time. But here, in Exodus 17, it's God who stands before Moses. Very, very curious. 
Notice, secondly, upon what God stood. Verse 6, I, And I will stand before you there on the rock. He stands on the rock. God identifies himself with the rock by standing upon it. What's going to happen to the rock and what is going to flow from the rock is what happens to God and what flows from God. Thirdly, notice what Moses did to the rock. Verse 6. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. God receives the blow of judgment for the people doubting his promises and his faithfulness. Moses is striking God, judging him who bears the consequences for what the people had just done, accusing God by accusing Moses of not caring for them. So 1 Corinthians 10, which we read earlier, is telling us that it's not God that's being struck, God the Father. Who is it in 1 Corinthians 10 says is being struck? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Redeemer of Israel, is being symbolized here as the one being struck for the sin of the people. Then we notice uh, what flows from the rock when it's struck. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Water does not flow. Quenching the people's thirst is not possible unless the rock is struck first. When the rock is struck, when God is struck, when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, bears the consequences of what they had done to doubt God's provision, not until then does the water flow. When that striking takes place, the water flows. Relief for their thirst comes, but only after judgment is rendered. The story of the living rock or living water is a signpost. It points it points to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of God's people. Well, how was it as an example? I want you to look at three things with me as we look at this story. The Rock of the Living Water is an example. Here's the first one. That just like Israel, we are suffering pilgrims in the wilderness. Just like Israel, we are suffering people, uh, suffering pilgrims in the wilderness. Many years after this incident, Moses looked back on these events, and here's what he said in Deuteronomy 8. He says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has brought, has led you out of the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here's the truth. The Christian life is a life lived in a wilderness of suffering. Uh, life is not easy, is it? Uh, it has its difficulties all the way along, a varying intensity, but they are there, aren't they? So we understand uh, that this life is full of suffering. Paul says so in Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He goes on, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
Uh, do you groan very much? I don't mean grumble or complain, but isn't there a lot of groaning in life that things never seem to work out exactly like we want them to? And a lot of things don't work out at all, even close to what we want or desire. And there is pain, and there is hurt, and there is disappointment, and we groan. Because as long as sin is on earth, life will not work as God has designed it to work. It will not work until we see him in glory. We live a life where life doesn't quite work. And we groan because we suffer. But this happens to us like it did for Israel so that the Lord would what? And so that we would what? So we would know what was in our heart. Who we really are. Who's the person inside? Not the face you show, but the heart you have. What's there? Jim Keller, pastor of Redeemer uh, PCA in New York City, says suffering will polarize you. It won't leave you as you were. Then he says this. Suffering will leave you bitter and angry, or it will make you more godly and humble. He says it will make you bigger in your own eyes, or it will make God bigger in your eyes. Keller says, it will make God, listen to this, it will make God stand before you, or it will make you stand before God. Life is a wilderness. We all walk in it, just like Israel did. Secondly, just like Israel, we have a God who suffered for our treason. We have a God who suffered for our treason. When things aren't going as we expect them to, and especially when life brings pain and discomfort, we're charged with high treason and we doubt that God is good, that God is faithful. He will fulfill his promises. We read again in Exodus 17, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Puritan Matthew Henry uh, says when Israel questions, is the Lord among us or not, they question three things about God. Henry says they question God's presence. Is God even here? Secondly, they question God's providence. If he's here, is he even in control? Third, they question God's promises. If he's in control, will he do what he said? I think Henry's right, isn't he? We do the same thing. We question his presence, his providence, and his promises, and we doubt him, and we accuse him. When we question God like that, it's a little bit in our lives like being a backseat driver. Anybody guilty of being a backseat driver? You know, we, with some of the people you ride with, particularly family members uh, or very close friends, you have lots of instructions for the driver. T turn here. Uh, turn right. Right now. Turn right. S slow, slow down. You're going too fast. Okay, go, go down the no, no, go further down. Don't turn now. Go further down the road. Stop. Be careful. You're going too fast. You're going too slow. Speed up. We have all these commands, don't we? We have all these things we want people to do. But when we do that to the Lord, it's a much different thing, uh, isn't it? Uh, when we say to him those things who spoke our galaxy into existence and the hundred million other galaxies that we uh, can't even all name, which is phenomenal, millions of other galaxies, in our own Milky Way, there are 200 billion stars that God created that he names like puppy dogs. Why would we question him about why things are happening as they are? 
Doesn't our doubt in God's goodness and the purity of it lead us to put God on trial? I think it does, doesn't it? We put God on trial. Jerry Bridges uh, talks in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, uh, and quotes uh, an individual, uh, a Puritan named Stephen Charnock. Let me read this excerpt from his book. He says, Bridges says, We must accept by faith that God is holy, even when trying circumstances make it appear otherwise. To complain uh, against God is in effect to deny his holiness and to say he is not fair. In the 17th century, Stephen Charnock said, It is less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no God. The other a deformed, unlovely, and detestable God. He that saith God is not holy speaks much worse than he that saith there is no God at all. We like Israel, put God to the test, that we are the ones who charge him with treason. We need to understand that we have in God, because we all have done this before, we have in Jesus Christ, one who's borne our treason for us. We have someone who's borne that judgment, just like in Exodus 17 for what we have done. We have an advocate, we have a redeemer, that God in his mercy redeems the treasonous people. He has done that for us. What a gift. Thirdly, just like Israel, we have been given a life-giving stream. Jesus is meant to quench our thirsty souls, right? That in this pilgrimage, now we are to find in him a living water that satisfies and quenches our thirst. When we doubt God's goodness, though, and charge him with treason, uh, that we drink from the wells of our own idolatry, don't we? Uh, that we are, like 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 14 says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's always this temptation to move away from this God, not to trust him, but to trust wells of water that we have for ourselves. Uh, that is idolatry. Cornelius Plantinga in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, says, All idolatry is futile. Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed, but undernourished. So it's important that we realize that scriptures make the case that every child of God has the wealth in which they are to drink. And the scriptures make the case that unless Jesus is that well, uh, we our bellies will be bloated, but we'll always be thirsty. Remember what Jesus said on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you hear that Jesus is saying present in every person who trusts him for salvation is a heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit from which flows springs of living water. The source of that water is the Holy Spirit. Every Christian upon conversion is made a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God dwells there by his Spirit who provides rivers of living water. So in other words, God brings uh, to all of his children the Spirit of God, and by that Spirit, they have, as Titus says to Paul, uh, Paul says to Titus, a washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's an amazing gift. That God indwells us by his Spirit. And he is a well, a flowing stream of living water within the heart of every believer. Paul even says that to the church in Rome that the Christians are involved by the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. He's not just a well of living water, this Holy Spirit. He's the very power of the resurrected Christ from the dead. We have that. It is within us. We are the temple of God's Spirit. So now, now, now think about that a little bit. So that if you are a believer in Christ, you have no lack of life-giving water and resurrection power to live the Christian life. No lack. You don't lack anything. You have been given everything that you might walk with him. So when we uh, rebel or refuse to obey God, uh, like in the words of James, uh, that we are enticed to sin by our own desire. We can blame no one but ourselves because we refuse to access that spring of living water, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If we don't do that, if we don't access that living water and that power that we have in Christ, this would be like living in a home that's totally dark, but it's completely electrified because we won't turn on the light switch, you know. (laughs) And we complain that it's dark. That's what it's like. Uh, Or it's like, as expressed in one songwriter, we're standing knee-deep in a river, dying of thirst. That's what it's like. We have every gift from God to live the life that God has set before us by the power, through the living water that he provides us in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is a supernatural means by which God indwells the Christian to bring them to a supernatural transformation. God's in the business of transforming us. So when we turn to Christ and turn to him for the first time, that he makes us, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation. We are brand new in him. He makes us born again, to use the words from John 3. We're born again. But now that we're born again, we are to continue from day to day to change from one degree of glory to another, according to what Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So the Spirit is committed to us to transform us, to bring renewal and transformation. But it requires our response, right? So the Word of God talks much about our response to this life-giving stream within us, this resurrection power. Let me just give you some references to that. First Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Don't put him down. Don't reject him. Then these three passages from the book of Ephesians, great passages from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. 
one of the best uh, portions of Scripture about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Paul tells the Ephesian church, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't grieve him. Listen to him. Respond to him. All resources have been given to you. He will lead you. But he says also in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. It, means to be, it doesn't mean about get more of the Spirit. It means to be controlled by him. Uh, we have all the Spirit. Now it's, it's being submissive to him. Be filled with the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit. And then he says in verse uh, 17 of chapter 6, and put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, the Spirit of God inspired has been given to us that by it we might be fed, that we might be nourished, that the power of the Spirit of God might be evident to us by this eternal Word. That is transformative. That's what we have. That's what X-17 points us to. So I, in closing, would like just to remind us that Paul learned to have a tender heart toward the Holy Spirit of God. I urge us all that we would learn Paul's example by having a tender heart toward the Spirit of God at work in us. He says this in Acts 24:16. He says, So I always take pains to have a clean conscience before God and before man. Paul says, I always take pains to have a clean conscience before God and before man. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, uh, if he were to footnote this, that I am indwelt by the Spirit of God. He always leads me and he guides me. He's a life-giving stream. He's the resurrection power of God. And he bears upon my conscience with his word that he's inspired to do this or to do that or to not to do this or to not to do that or to say this or not to say that. He guides us in our conscience. So do we take pains in how he bears upon us to respond to him in a way that honors him? Do we take pains to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord? So just two questions as we leave. I want you to think about this this week. What pains aren't you taking? that grieves the Holy Spirit of God? What pains aren't you taking that grieves the Holy Spirit of God? And secondly, to which wells are you going to quench the thirst of your soul? To which wells are you going to quench the thirst of your soul? This will take a conscience that takes pains to listen to what the answer is in your own heart and then to respond accordingly to his great glory. And in our response to that, we will know the transformative work that God gives us by the, sw the spring of living water that flows in us. We see that example in Exodus 17. Let me pray.